thanks also to the musicians, band, everyone who's helped contribute, make this a meaningful time for us this morning. We really appreciate it. There's a story told about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military leaders in all of history. And uh, there's a story told about his army and about a young soldier in his army. And this young soldier found himself at the end of a very long day after a very long, hot march, exhausted. And he was on guard duty that night. It was the graveyard shift. It was the worst shift you could pull. But he soldiered up and took his position. But it wasn't long before his eyes started to get heavy and he's fighting off sleep. And eventually he can't. He just caves in and he drifts off. And then, who would come but through the camp but Alexander the Great himself, inspecting his trips. And he comes across the young soldier snoozing under a tree. And he kicks him roughly and wakes him up. The young soldier looks up into the face of his leader, of his commander, and terror grips him because he understands the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty. Falling asleep on guard duty in Alexander the Great's army was a really serious offense. Um, one of the penalties uh, for that was often a soldier would have, have oil poured over him and he'd be set on fire. Not pleasant at all. So this young soldier realizes that this is probably the end for him. But Alexander the Great looks down, to, down at him and, and he asks him a question. He says, young man, What's your name? He looks up and he said, My name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looks at him and he said these words. He said, Then either change your name or change your conduct. Change your name or change your conduct. You see, to bear the name... Alexander and his army meant a lifestyle. It meant character in keeping with that name. And so it is for us who bear the name Jesus, who bear the name Christ. It demands a lifestyle in keeping with that name. Character and principles in our lives that reflect that name. And I think that's what Paul is describing here in this letter that he wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, in Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter two that we've been reading this morning, where Paul describes a life, what a life looks like, bearing the name of Jesus, and I think it also for us gives us some really great advice, some big ideas for how we can live a life then that makes an influence in the world. Because God is calling a people who will boldly serve him, a people who will make a difference in the world. So how can we live that life of influence? How can we have that life in keeping with the name of Jesus? So Paul is writing to these Christians in Thessalonica. And if you were here last week at Fitzroy, we were thinking about... Acts chapter 16 and Paul in Philippi where you see the beginnings of this little church in Philippi but Paul is arrested and Silas are arrested and they're thrown in jail and we considered how could we worship 
whenever the heat gets turned up? How can we worship when things get really tough and difficult? And uh, we thought about how Paul and Silas were able to worship God even in the midst of the dungeon. Well, the events that followed Acts 16, when they got out of that dungeon, they moved on. And in Acts chapter 17, we find the backstory for what's happening here in this letter to Thessalonians because Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica. And uh, after about a month of ministry there, there were a large number of people who had given their allegiance to Jesus. And the first church community there was formed. But as often happened, persecution soon followed. And Paul and Silas had to flee Thessalonica. And then later on, Paul gets a report that these Christians in this new church were actually, in spite of all the persecution, thriving. So he writes this letter to them to reconnect with them and uh, to encourage them. So let's look at a few of these big ideas from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The first idea is this, living a life of influence. It has to start with the right motives. It's got to start with the right motives. Be assured, Paul says, that when we speak to you, we're not after crowd approval, only God approval. We're not after crowd approval, only God approval. And that raises a good question for us. Who's my audience as I live my life? You see, some people want to be seen doing good. Other people are seen because of the good that they do. And there's a big difference, isn't there? See, Jesus is calling followers who are going to be truly God-centered in their lives. And in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 6, think of that passage, Jesus warns about practicing a form of righteousness... Think of acts of religious devotion in general, whose purpose is to show off before others. In Matthew 6, Jesus used the example of giving, and he used the example of praying. And he talked about people who give to be seen giving by other people, people who pray to be seen praying by other people. And Jesus warned against that kind of performance, to be noticed, to make a certain impression. But as followers of Jesus, we have an audience of only one. And our ambition then should be Jesus. And our great example as we follow is Jesus. To not be seen doing good, but to be seen Because of that good that we do. I don't know about you, but I get inspired as I read the stories of great missionary pioneers. And one of them that really inspired me, I love this story, is the story of Amy Carmichael. There's one of our own from Malisle here in Northern Ireland. And as a young Irish woman working in England in the late 1800s, Amy heard God's call on her life to serve in the mission field. Twice as she applied, she was rejected for medical reasons. 
But she eventually found a mission agency who would be willing to put her on a ship and send her to India. And when she arrived in India, she arrived there with a tropical fever. Some missionaries who met her believed that she wouldn't last six months. But Amy Carmichael, she recovered. And Amy Carmichael never went home. And the young missionary soon discovered that the way to reach the people was not through preaching at them, but through sacrifice. Here's what she said. She wrote, If the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary love. And she lived what she said. And she reached out to the poorest, the youngest, the most despised, especially the babies and the little children. Here were her words. She said, There were days when the sky turned black for me because of what I heard and knew was true. Sometimes it was as if I saw the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling alone as he knelt long ago under the olive trees. And the only thing that the one, that one who cared could do was to go softly and kneel down beside him so that he would not be alone in his sorrow over the little children. Amy felt her heart break for these little kids in India. But she was spurred into action. She rescued them. She built a home. She recruited staff to care for them. The ministry became known as the Donover Fellowship. And the children called its headmistress Amma, the Tamil word for mother. Amy Carmichael's mission trip ended 55 years later, I find this so inspiring, when she died at the age of 83. And during that time, she had rescued over a thousand abused and abandoned and enslaved children. And her stories and her poems and her devotions and her prayers filled 35 books in Britain. But not once did she return home to hear the praises of her friends and her supporters. You see, to Amy, anything that called attention to herself stole attention from the God that she served. And in fact, in 1919, her name was published in a British honors list. And when she found out about it, she wrote back to England and she asked to have her name removed. It troubled her in her words to have an experience so different from his, who was despised and rejected, not kindly honored. What an inspirational lady. And ironically, the woman who wanted no honor, no recognition, other than that of being Christ's servant, became famous nonetheless. And tens of thousands of people followed her example of sacrificial love and unselfish ambition onto the mission field. Who's our audience? Who are we living for? Who do we want to notice us? Are we living for momentary accolades? If we want to live a life of influence, it means looking only for the smiling approval of our Heavenly Father, rather than the rewards and the recognition of other people. It means our righteous acts, our good works are done out of relationship to the Father. 
And only when we're captured by his love does a good work that we do become a righteous work. Live a life of influence, it starts with right motives. Who is my audience? Second big idea is we've got to shout with our struggles. Paul writes, since we've been put through that battery of tests, you're guaranteed that both we and the message are free of error, mixed motives or hidden agendas. And there's a great question for us to consider. What do I do with my pain then? Back in April, we took our teenagers for a weekend away. And during that weekend away, one of the things they got to do was they got to build rafts. And uh, they built these. They spent ages building these rafts. And uh, then it came to that point where they would drop them into the river and get on them. And they did. But standing on the riverbank, the one thought that was recurring in my mind was, it's only a matter of time. You see, it's only a matter of time until each one of them went in the water as their rafts slowly came apart. And that's life, isn't it? It's only a matter of time until we go in the water. If you're a person, you're going to have problems. If you have a pulse you're going to have pain. That's life. Last week we were thinking about Acts chapter 16 and asking that question, how can we worship God when life is tough? Because when you worship God when your life is great, people will ignore you. But when you worship God when your life hurts, people listen. We saw this in Acts chapter 16. So what do we do with our pain when we we encounter those struggles? Well, it's about a perspective shift, I think. And I remember when I was in school, in high school, we'd have metalwork class. And uh, I remember in metalwork class, we would often get to, to, to heat up and, and shape metal. And we got this hot piece of metal and we placed it, many of you have done this, on an anvil. And then we could hammer it and shape it and make it into something much more valuable than what it was. And the only reason that we could do that was because the anvil didn't change. The anvil was constant. And because the anvil doesn't change, metal items that are placed on the anvil can be changed. And that's one way to look at what happens to us whenever we face struggles and challenges. We're being molded on the anvil that is God. And it's important for us to remember that we are going to face trials. That we're going to face pressure and challenges. We're going to find ourselves in situations where we're beyond our ability to cope. And very often my default response in those situations is, why God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Well, he's shaping us in those times. He's teaching us to trust him. He's drawing us away from our strength to his. Will it always be comfortable to be in that process? Is it pleasant? Not 
at all. Not at all. But one of the, the quotes that I shared last week when we were thinking about Acts chapter 16 was one of Charles Spurgeon's quotes. When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. I've held on to that quote in my life. When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. And I think that's what an anvil attitude is. What can God teach me here? How can God mold me? I can't see it right now, but God, the master craftsman, is at work in my life. And do you understand as well that things will get better? We have hope as well in the midst of our struggles. There will come a time when God sets things straight. All the sad things will come on true. And Jesus leaves no room for doubt about that. He says he will return. There's no ifs. There's no maybes about that. There are over 300 references to his second coming in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 New Testament books speak of it with confidence. So in the world that we're in where we see struggle all around us, evil and selfishness and violence and deceit, all of those things will be severely dealt with and removed from the planet. The things that cause us and him pain will be gone forever. And we have the promise of residence in a tearless, graveless, painless world. So we have this comfort in our sufferings of a future hope. We live a life of influence. Starts with right motives. And it means that in our struggles, we can shout of God's hope and God's comfort and God's goodness with us. And I think to live a life of influence also means that we have to speak grace with our words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. We never use words to butter you up. No one knows that better than you. And God knows we never use words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. Here's a good evaluation question for us. How can I make other people smile? How can I make other people smile with the words that I speak? More than 600,000. That's how many words the Oxford English Dictionary says are in the English language. And if you add in all the scientific and technical terms, it's well over a million. Now that's an awful lot of words, isn't it? That's an awful lot of words. Enough that we should always have the perfect word to say to other people. So why then do we seem to choose the wrong word so often? And when I say we, I mean me. Why do I speak the wrong word so often? You know, the word that doesn't say what we mean, or the word that stings someone else when we mean to say something nice. Do you ever find yourself choosing the wrong word and wishing you'd said something else? And the scriptures give us some really helpful advice on this, because words easily become instruments of destruction. Have you ever been hurt by someone's words? 
That's really a silly question to ask, right? It's like saying, is the sun hot? Is water wet? Of course I have. We all have. We felt the sting of hurtful words. In our recent heat wave, we've watched news footage about gorse fires over the UK. And uh, a few years ago, we had friends in in the state of Colorado in the United States who were caught up in a a huge fire. Their home was in the pathway of the Waldo Canyon fire. This wildfire that claimed 18,000 acres of land and destroyed 347 homes. And they figured out when they investigated that this terrible wildfire, as many of our gorse fires too, was either caused by someone's intentional act or someone's careless act. Maybe a cigarette carelessly thrown away or a glass bottle carelessly thrown away or a campfire carelessly erected and not properly put out. But isn't that the way with our words? Often it's intentional. Sometimes it's careless. But they become instruments of destruction. In James chapter 3, God's word tells us, A bit in the mouth of a horse controls a whole horse. A small rudder and a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets a course in the face of the strongest winds. And a word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything. Or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud in a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. That's how Eugene Peterson translate paraphrases James chapter 3 think about the words that you've said to others have you put anyone down have you been unkind have other people said those things to you what effect have those words had have you felt crushed yeah because words are so easily instruments of destruction but words are supposed to build people up not tear them down. It's easy to use words to hurt people, but God wants to use our words to help people. And a few encouraging words from someone can be a life-changing experience for someone else. You see, words flow out of your heart, not out of your mouth. Sure, our brains choose the words that we're going to use, but how we use words is usually a reflection of what's going on inside our hearts. If your heart is bitter and angry, your words are probably going to be bitter and angry also. If you're insecure, you might tear other people down to try and make yourself feel better. But if your heart is full of goodness and godly thoughts, your words will follow suit. That's what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Your words. 
You can't see him. You can't touch him. But they have incredible power to destroy or to build up. They can cement a friendship or crush someone's spirit. Words can sort out a misunderstanding or ruin someone's day. Words can cut deep. But you know that. And you know what? The words not don't need to be permanent. So do you need to ask forgiveness of anyone for what they have you have said to them? Do you need to to forgive someone for what they have said to you. Speak grace with your words. How can you make someone smile this day, this week? Almost done. Living a life of influence. I think we're also encouraged by Paul in Second and First Thessalonians chapter two to show humility with our attitude. Show humility with our attitude. Paul writes, even though we had some standing as Christ's apostles, we never threw our weight around or tried to come across as important with you or anyone else. We weren't to lift with you. We took you just as you were. We were never patronizing, never condescending. I've got a little video to show you real quick. And, uh, Watch it and consider this question. How did I come across? It's from the French Open a while back. Novak Djokovic, he'll be playing today. But this is a lovely moment where a ball boy who was meant to be looking after 